Let me read some words that are so indicative and instructive concerning what we've been singing about and what we'll be looking at today in Scripture. Jesus is about to die on the cross. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. Wouldn't be appropriate, really, for the sun to shine, would it? The sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The curtain was torn in two. It was torn from the top down to the bottom. That curtain was the curtain that separated humanity, all but one person, humanity, from the presence of God. I want to tell you about the Long family. Um, there's this awesome family that I knew growing up in New York State. You know some families, they just sort of like, they're just so wonderful and so kind of rich, and uh, not in monetary sense, but in sort of the sense of they just are lovely people, and they're interesting people, and they're they're into interesting things, and that's what I mean. these people were just like that. But I want to tell you about their house. The Longs lived on their house backed onto uh, the Erie Canal in upstate New York or western New York, and they built this house as a raised ranch. So if you know what a raised ranch is, it's kind of like you know there's a couple of big sort of windows on the near the ground. And then there's about, about this high, there's another whole story, right? So there's sort of a, half, half the story sticks, the basement sticks out of the ground and half of it's in the ground. And uh, they built, they built, well, they, <laughs> they, they framed, let's put it this way, they framed this house on the Erie Canal. And then they decided that they would temporarily live in the lower level so that over time they would live in the upstairs once they had it just they never made it out of the basement <laughs> and that was and you know what it didn't seem to care they didn't care I mean you go to visit them and that home was as warm and as rich as any home you'd ever enter but you know there was like st stud walls and and there was like that uh, wood sheathing on the walls. And yeah, there was plumbing and everything, but still, it was just a temporary residence, right? And they never, they never made it. It's interesting, uh, the person that was closest to our family was the daughter. And uh, when her and her husband retired, they bought the house after her parents actually passed away. And they finished the upstairs. It was just sort of kind of cool that they. They literally finished it into this beautiful, you know, beautiful house. Um, but they lived their whole family life in this temporary dwelling. Um, the, the, the writer of Hebrews um, introduces us in chapter 8 to this concept of God's temporary dwelling or his 
temporary house. Um, it, was, it was called the tabernacle, right? And if you look up here for a definition, the tabernacle means uh, residence or dwelling place. And so in the law, God said, build a tabernacle. And he gave very specific instructions on how it was to be built, right? And uh, there's a picture here that, uh, well, if, next one, Sherilyn. Cheryl, nope, maybe not. There you go. Um, there's a picture of that, that uh, tabernacle. And you can see that there was sort of like a gate around the outside, and then there was a place that you would enter, and you could see where the, the priests were busy if you were bringing in animals to be sacrificed for, you know, because of your sin, or if you were bringing offerings to bring worship to God, you'd bring it in. And then, and then that, the, small, the smaller rectangle there, that is, that is the, the tent, right? And it was divided into two. There was the holy place where, where all the priests would work in there as well. But then there was this most holy place, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And that was the symbolic seat of God's presence. That's where, symbolically, God resided. That was his dwelling place, right? And so if we just back up a slide again, two, one more, right there. In chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews starts to introduce us to this concept that that dwelling place was a temporary dwelling place. It was never intended to be taken to be God's only residence or final residence. It was temporary. And so in chapter 8, we read these words. We've talked about the fact that um, in Hebrews, the writer is explaining how we're in a new covenant and that Jesus is the high priest overseeing this new covenant and he is our advocate. And he writes these words. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do not have such, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human hands. And so you take from that passage, which he's introduced, he just sort of makes reference to it at the very beginning of chapter 8. You take from that that there's actually two tabernacles. There's one tabernacle that the people could, you know, touch and was a part of their community life. When, when they needed to go worship, they would go to a tabernacle. And that was a temporary earthly tabernacle. But you see, the author in the beginning of chapter 8 starts to introduce this concept of the true tabernacle, or another tabernacle, one that you can't see, that is heavenly, that is not of this world. Now in chapter 9, the author starts to 
explain more fully what he means about the two tabernacles. And so we'll start chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement covenant. <laughs> and he speaks for me now when he says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. <laughs> it would take a long time for us to get into all the detail of all the symbolism there. But when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he'd offered for himself and for the sins of the people, or the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And so we have that picture again. Only one person, one time a year, went into the most holy place, where it was where God resided into, and that was where his presence was. So the, into the most holy place was reserved for only one individual. I think the phrase from this chapter 9 that talks about these two sanctuaries that is so important that I want to highlight, it's kind of worked around today, is Hebrews 9.8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this. So what's this? The Holy Spirit was showing by this. This, the tabernacle. This, the process of worshiping God. This, the process of keeping short accounts with God. The process of sacrifices. The process of offerings. The priests. This, the tabernacle, this, the holy place, this, the most holy place. God, or the Holy Spirit, was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And so, the author is saying, that tabernacle was simply a prototype, if you will, or a temporary dwelling of God. The way into the most holy place, I'd like you to think of as the way into God's presence. And it would not ultimately be restricted to one descendant of Aaron once a year <laughs> following a very extensive pro process of preparation and then only one precise physical and geographic location, a tent in Palestine, it would not ultimately be restricted to one person in one place. 
was a foreshadowing of the greater reality. There would be a permanent means or way established, a means by which anyone could freely enter the presence of God, regardless of your race or your gender, your nationality, regardless of your economic or social status, regardless of where you are located on the time-space continuum, regardless of the times or the number of times that you wanted to enter into the presence of God, regardless of your spiritual condition, there would be a permanent means of entering into the presence of God. And that tabernacle that was prescribed through the law of Moses was simply meant to be for a time. It was for a time. <clears throat> that way, or the means into the presence of God was ultimately realized by Jesus Christ, who was the ultimately effective sacrifice of atonement. And through his death and resurrection, gave access, tore the curtain, and gave us access, each one, everyone, into the presence of God. Chapter 9 now compares and contrasts that temporary tabernacle to the one that he introduced in chapter 8 right at the beginning, the true and heavenly tabernacle. And from it we can learn in this contrasting and comparison, we can learn something about God. The first thing that I would say that it teaches us about God, that earthly tabernacle, and the fact that there are an earthly tabernacle that is defunct and a heavenly tabernacle, is that God isn't confined to a building. Yes, symbolically, he was present in the most holy place. But that should not be construed to mean that he was only found in the most holy place. Stephen, who is about to be stoned to death, gives this incredibly eloquent speech and he talks about Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the law and how, how Jesus Christ is the coming Messiah. Before it, he was stoned. But he says these powerful words because the, the people of Israel had this idea that you could put a genie in a bottle <laughs> and you could put God in his place. You could put him in a box, literally. Right? And Stephen says, no, 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 you've, you've, you've missed 
read, misunderstood that earthly tabernacle of God. And he writes these words, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? God cannot be confined to a singular place. And what we find in our world, places that are designated as holy, I would suggest to you that that's idolatry. It's simply a place of brick and mortar until the presence of God is there. And then it's the most holy place. Right? And so God cannot be confined. And the thing is, this sets us up to this wonderful principle that we take from this scripture that compares the earthly tabernacle to the heavenly tabernacle that Paul writes about when he's writing the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he writes these words. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are a tabernacle. God is not limited to a building or to a religious place. God is like the air, as Tessa said. Jesus is everywhere. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, we read, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Have we heard that so much that it... <laughs> Familiarity breeds contempt. That means not that much to us. That we are the dwelling place of God. How callous must we be for that not to mean something powerful? How hard must we be for that to be, okay, what's your next point? We are the tabernacles. We are his dwelling place. And this is what happened when Jesus became that perfect sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice of atonement for us. And so we see that the earthly tabernacle, the writer is trying to point out, was simply a prototype to inform us The Holy Spirit, once again, was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. In other words, there is a most holy place that is not in that tent. So what can we learn from the earthly temporary tabernacle? Even though it was just for a time, it gives me two really strong impressions that I want to convey to you today. The first one is that God invites us to redemption. When God gave the law, 
He said, you know, I want you to live like this. He gave us the commandments. He gave us the rules and regulations. He gave us all kinds of guidance. He didn't have to include instructions for how you could enter into his presence. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God could have said, you blew it. I'm out of here. I'm going to start something else. I'm on to different things. No. He invited Adam and Eve into community, into a relationship with him. So even though we mess up constantly, God, right from the get-go and through the law of Moses, has said, I want you in my presence. I want to set up a means by which you can come into my presence. And that earthly tabernacle that was built and was in the desert. If it says nothing else, it says God wants us in his presence. And you might say, well, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's only one person he wants in his presence. And I would say, no. That's why Jesus came. So that we could all have access to his presence. And so we learn from the earthly tabernacle one thing, if not just one thing, and that is that God wants us in relationship. He invites us in. He made a means for us to enter in. And that priest went on behalf of everybody else. And so, we read, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. But in the new covenant, of which that old tabernacle, or that temporary earthly tabernacle speaks to, in, in the new covenant... Our new high priest serves on our behalf in a new tabernacle, or the true tabernacle. And we see that he is still inviting us. Look at these passages from Ephesians and Hebrews. But in Christ Jesus, you are you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are invited into Redemption into his presence. And then in Hebrews 4, which we've studied before, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our, in our time of need. And so the earthly tabernacle give us, gives us the suggestion, the initial suggestion, which was more fully realized when Christ entered the true tabernacle, that God wants to invite us into his presence. And the next thing is, is hard to accept, and it grates against our sensibilities, but the truth of the matter is, the earthly tabernacle also teaches us that redemption Coming into the presence of God requires 
a bloody death. We'll read next week in Hebrews 10, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then in Romans, Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Is this because God is, is, is somehow weird and, and, and rejoices in death or, or gets excited about blood? He's a, some kind of masochist? Well, well quite the opposite. <laughs> he came to conquer death on our behalf. And, and the bloody spectacle of the first tabernacle, because it was a bloody mess, and the scene on Golgotha at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a bloody mess. That spectacle is to speak to us about the holiness of God and the abhorrence, the severity, the absolutely unacceptability of our sin. That only a death could atone for it. Have we become so callous that this incredible truth could not affect us? Do we take for granted that the monumental cost to Christ of our salvation? Do we take lightly our sin? I think sometimes it's almost like we need sort of a, a, a visual reminder. I think that's what the passion of the Christ did. It was gruesome. It was gruesome. And yet its impact was that people understood what sin costs, what sin results in, how awful sin is, and how holy God is. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This morning I can tell you unequivocally, unabashedly, with absolute confidence that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way into the presence of God. That first tabernacle is long past functioning. <laughs> we have been given a way into the very presence of God by Jesus Christ. In fact, God has appointed his envoy, the Holy Spirit, God himself in the person of the Spirit, to take up residence in each one of us. And this is why we hear the author of Hebrews say, but in fact the ministry of Jesus that he received as our high priest is superior to theirs, that would be the Levitical priesthood, as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, 
since the new covenant is established on better promises. I would say better promises indeed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching us. We need instruction. Your holiness is beyond our ability to grasp. And so we need to see animals being killed to understand how holy you are and how awful our sin is. And I thank you, Lord, for the law of Moses, which was such a precise depiction of the fact that death was required for the forgiveness of sins. And so we thank you for this prototype that the people of Israel lived with for hundreds of years that spoke to a better way. And we thank you that we are on this side of the cross and that we know that we have full and free access into the true tabernacle or residence or presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now as we prepare our hearts to remember that sacrifice, I pray that we would not take for granted <coughs> your holiness, your standard, and we would not take for granted the sacrifice that you are willing to make and we would not forget our need for a Savior. Our need for a sacrifice of atonement that would bring us into the true tabernacle of God. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we now take these emblems to take them fully conscious, or as conscious as we can be, of what they mean and why you established this ritual for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>